Welcome to Inspired Artist Podcast with me, Porter Singer. I am speaking with Dave Stringer today, who is a Grammy-nominated producer, musician, and songwriter who has been widely profiled as one of the most innovative artists of the modern yoga movement. He's both an inspiring singer and a compelling public speaker, resolving neuroscience, yoga philosophy, and art into a participatory theatrical experience. I can vouch for that because I've been to many of his live shows and they're incredible. He is featured in the documentary film Mantras, Sound Into Silence, which I saw, that was awesome, maybe we can talk about that, and The Power of Mantra, and has toured extensively leading concerts, workshops, and retreats all over the world. Welcome. It's great to be here, Porter. (laughs) So, let's let's start there actually that's really fun i forgot about that movie sounds into silence yeah what was that like oh well it's funny i almost wasn't in it um and (laughs) but um what happened is um i had been in a conversation with the director and she was like well you know we're really done filming and but we started talking about the neuroscience of of kirtan and um i was in the process of working on a research proposal with a a neuroscientist named Andrew Newberg. And uh, she wanted to interview him and the plot thickened. So, and she realized that actually that was a whole other way of looking at devotional singing that wasn't examined in the film. So it actually got turned into kind of a major chunk of it because um, it was another perspective on Mm -hmm. what's happening here. So, um, and I, I, it's a funny thing, this devotional music scene, uh, because a lot of people are coming at it from a lot of different directions. And when people use the word bhakti, for example, I, I kind of want to know what they mean by that. You know, like what was their path to it? I'm not trying to discredit anybody's experience, but um, uh, I find that for myself, um, I'm, a, I'm a committed agnostic, which makes me an unusual bhakti in that sense because okay. my position is i don't know you know uh-huh. and, but is that uh, what agnostic means yeah just gnostic. like willing to willing to think on it gnosis means to know and ah uh, against not know so gotcha. um okay. and to me like that's what the process of yoga actually is it's not a belief system it's a process of inquiry you know and and um so you know, for me, it starts as a process of inquiry into like, how does this stuff work? You know, if I don't, if I don't believe in it or know anything about it, or if you come to a chant that I'm leading or you're leading or anyone's leading and no one gives you any info and you end up having a great experience, well, how come? You know, you, there must be something else going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even within the yoga world itself, there's so many different ideas about what we mean by consciousness or God. Um, it, it seems better position for me as an artist to take this position that I don't know. I'm really interested. I want to ask questions and maybe this practice is a way of answering those questions for myself, or at least leading me toward something like an answer. That's so interesting. What do you feel is like the the flip side of that? Like when you say I'm like, that's not a really popular position to take. What what do you see as like the popular position to take, I guess? I guess the popular position seems to be one of, um, oh, just sing and everything will come to you. You know, uh, like that's all you need to know. And and on mm. one hand, to cultivate ecstasy in yourself, yeah, that certainly changes your relationship to other people and, and to the world. Um, I really appreciate like the initial bhakti position that there shouldn't be any mediator between like the singer and and the, the divine, however you see it, that, that we're trying to create a direct experience. Um, that's powerful for me. The question is though, is that I think a lot of people's position is we're singing names of God and that it implies belief in God. Mm-hmm. And, and and when we get to that, I have to say, well, what do you mean by God, first of all? Like, what's that to you? And everybody's going to answer differently. Um, and so, but I, the thing I'm a little uncomfortable with is sometimes I think people are trying to turn this all into a new religion. And yet I see this as a path of leading us away from the dogma 
and division of religion into something more authentically connected and spiritual. Mm. So is, and is your interest in the neuroscience, is that based in some like path that you took previously? I, I don't remember reading about that. I remember reading that you had been a videographer, but are you like a scientist at heart? Um, well, <laughs> I'm married <laughs> to a philosopher and we're neuroscientists. Okay. But um, no, I mean, I would say that that's part of my, I've always found the metaphors of science really interesting. And in the songs that I write in English, they're, the poetry is sort of inspired by by some of those that imagery. Um, I'm also um, the son of a, of a physician. So like my mm. family has a scientific background. Um, and I'm sort of a refugee from various different religious movements, you know, beginning with like, you know, essentially fundamental Christianity and, you know, uh. And then, you know, time with the guru and everything. So, I mean, I'm making a lot of linkages between a lot of things. But uh, to specifically answer your question, how did the neuroscience thing get started? Uh, when I was first in India chanting, I went there not because I was seeking anything. I went because I was hired to make videos for a particular guru in India. And they deliberately didn't tell me anything about what was going on because what I was supposed to do was make a series of videos for beginners about Eastern philosophy. And their brilliant idea was to hire a beginner and hmm. have it all be through my lens, right? So they were asking me to engage in an act of discovery and it, it opened from there. So I'm having this amazing experience chanting and I wanted to know why because I, I wasn't trying to get something from it. it. It was happening. And from what I know, and from what I'd already been interested in asking about like how consciousness worked, because it's not like I didn't have these questions, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I knew something at the time that there were neuroscientific processes involved. This was in the 1990s. A lot of other research has happened between now and then. Um, but I wanted to see if we could explain it in terms of physiological processes. Um, in the same way, I think there's been a search for a physiological or chemical, neurochemical origin of consciousness itself, um, which more on that subject, you know, presently. <laughs> <laughs> is that, is, is there something that like you, you feel compelled to share or like something that surprised you about that? that element well, of all this? Um, I think like many people, um, and my wife would dispute this because she's a little bit more of a physicalist in this sense. Um, we have been looking, the search for the origin of consciousness animates like all of the yoga movement for, you know, thousands mm -hmm. of years. Um, and science keeps looking for a neurochemical origin of it. Like how, how do all these connections produce a sense of self and a sense of, you know, the divine. Um, you know, how do we feel love? What, what processes bring that about? Um, no one has explained it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, thousands of years, we have not been able to explain how consciousness arises. Um, what I find interesting right now is that there's a movement in philosophy and particularly there's a Australian philosopher, um, David Chalmers is his name. I think he might teach in the United States, but he's Australian, who says that um, when you can't break something down into constituent parts, it must be a fundamental principle, okay? So from the level of perspective of physics, we can't break electromagnetism down to anything smaller. Therefore, it is a fundamental principle of the universe. It's not made up of anything. Other things are made up of it, okay? Mm -hmm. We haven't been able to break down consciousness into fundamental, into any constituent parts that make consciousness. So there is a movement in philosophy that says, well then therefore consciousness itself is a fundamental principle of the universe, which I find really fascinating because, of course, yogis have essentially been saying this for a long time. Mm -hmm. All is consciousness, you know? Now, how we get from a, from consciousness to, like, a physical world is, like, that's another set of huge questions, you know? 
<laughs> I need for us to solve this all right now. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's a one-hour podcast. But, uh, <laughs> but I find this really, really interesting because in some ways when we chant together, there's, you can see the effects of consciousness, like how, it, how, it in, how we influence one another. Um, and, and it's a kind of a, a, call of it, you know, sometimes I, I think of it as a performance art project um in which you know we will repeat nonsense over and over faster and faster together and um and we'll see what happens and we can try it with <laughs> intentionality or we can try it without it and let's see what happens you know and what happens is you end up feeling better and you end up feeling connected to other people in this really profound way mm -hmm. you were talking about in the in the longer bio that I'm not sure if it was a bio, but it was like a long statement um, about when you first started just sort of creating sounds for yourself. That's something I've been exploring recently. Yeah. And when you say that, that's what kind of comes to mind is like, well, maybe it's not the actual words. Maybe it's just the fact that you're making sound and the words give you an excuse to yeah. do that. Yeah. But I mean, well, you're a songwriter too. I'll turn this back on you. I mean, how do you, when you write a song, what, where, where, where do those words come from? Uh, yeah, I, I feel like, like I'm less scientific. I'm less like questioning about stuff like no. that. So for me, it's like, I channeled it. I right. <laughs> came okay. from, it came from eternal source and okay. I just happened to pick it up and like, it was available. Yeah. But I happen to like, you know, I happen to pick up on it in that moment, I guess. Well, I mean, my experience isn't different than that. I mean, <laughs> like I, said, I think we were maybe putting different words around the same yeah. thing. You know, it's like, well, where does a song come from? You know, it, for people who've never written a piece of music, like it's very difficult to explain it. You know, it's just like it's there, mm -hmm. you know, or sometimes I have to look. I know a melody just shows up for me. And it, it just seems obvious in a way, like it just presented itself. And I don't necessarily have a sense of ownership, uh, almost mm -hmm. a like I ran into it and there it was. Yeah, like, yeah. Especially yeah. when it's old, do you find that? Like I yeah. look back and I'm like, did I really, like I did that? Yeah, <laughs> I know, it is a funny thing. You're like, well, I, I don't, if I created it, I'm not sure how. Yeah. You know, it's more like you just, this water's flowing from the well and you just stick your cup in there and there it is, you know? Oh, um, I like that. Yeah. I mean, I know I had this experience, like, before I knew anything about ragas, um, I would write things that particularly chants that had a particular, like, there was a, just a certain thing about the melody that, you know, that got me, you know, and then I would play it for people who had studied raga, and they were like, oh, yeah, that's raga yaman, you know, um, yeah. or, oh, that's Bhairavi. You know, and I'd be like, really, what's that? And they're like, well, you know, these are the rules around it. And and I had this feeling like, oh yeah, it felt right. Like as yeah. if like there was a natural principle, like some some actual fact of the universe I'd run into. Yeah, there's actually a, a Bill Bryson book that I started reading. I never finished, but the it's about the it's about the the not the evolution, but like the genesis of language. And it turns out that in most cultures, the sound for mother is very similar. The sound for father is very similar without any sort of migration happening or like, you know, um, any like those sorts of things taken out of it. Yep. it. And it's really, it's really interesting. There's just words that sort of like are obvious, I guess. Yeah. Like the sounds are meaningful in a lot of ways. I was for a while explaining a, 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 a a Sanskrit mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, in terms of its constituent sounds. And mm -hmm. I, I've been fortunate to be able to travel all over the world and sing, so I've been able to experiment with this uh, idea in a lot of different countries and a lot of different language groups. And it seems to be true whether we're talking Mandarin or German or, you know, or Spanish or whatever. Um, but the sound O pretty much is a feeling of openness and wonder. Mm -hmm you know, like surprised, mm. uh, the sound mm is in the word for mother everywhere. Mm -hmm. And somewhere, if, if it's not the beginning, it's in the middle or the end, and it's something really centering about that. Sounds like shh mean quiet everywhere. Mm. Um, if you go ee, it sounds exciting to people. Um, you know, so these constituent sounds of the mantra itself produce an like a meaning inherently 
in every language. So they must be part of the way our brain is organized. You know, and, and I think the mantras touch on that. And, you know, it sounds like you do the same. Like for me, if I'm writing a song in English, it usually doesn't come out in English first. It comes out as a series of sounds that just feel right mm. in certain places. Mm. And, and, and for me, um, like this, uh, I'm just about to release a new record called Thrum, uh, which is the first record I've released in English in like 20 years. And yeah. I got hijacked by, you know, chanting, which has been an interesting adventure. But, you know, I do speak English and I do write in English. <laughs> um, but the process of creating those songs is that they were all wordless. Like I sang them in a way in a, my own invented language or just how it came mm. out. Right. But of course, nobody can sing that back and or interpret it. It's like it's maybe emotionally uh it's clear emotionally in terms of that impact, but intellectually, you know, it's unclear. Um, but I would hear like a certain, it just had to go ooh here, or it had to go I there. And eventually some words would come in and it'd be like, okay, there's this word and there's this word and this word. And then at a certain point, I look at all those words and I go, oh, I see what this is about. Like the aboutness came from the sound. And, wow. and then all of a sudden was like, okay, wow, I'm writing a song about this. Really? Wow. What's the impact of that? Then I would have to dig in and start to then find the words that filled it in. But the meaning, the subject of the song always arose from the sounds that I was making in the first place. And I had to kind of like interpret them. So um, in the sense, this sense maybe we get to the origin of mantra. Like I, what I dug about chanting in Sanskrit in India was that, like I'd already been writing these nonsense songs, you know, but no one could re sing with me. But in this case, now we had a nonsense that we could all sing together. And it was like- a, <laughs> I love that description. It's so It's funny. like a transportive experience. It's like, oh my God, this is like content free. You can say, oh, it's to Shiva or Krishna or Durga or whatever, but you know, never mind. Just sing, mm -hmm. and and I, I, which I'm sure maybe some people are offended by that, you know, like for me to say that, but but, you know, it, 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 the fact that we could do that and connect in a space that's somehow both beyond meaning, but has its origin and something deep inside our heads, mm -hmm. is like that's really cool to me. Yeah, like, well. First of all, that is the craziest way of songwriting I've ever heard. That is so cool. I've never heard of anybody songwriting that way. Perhaps that's just my naivete, but that's really cool. I love that. Okay. Um, but then the other thing is I'm curious. Well, I just wanted to say that, but I have a question about the, the kind of the way that you view, I guess, the content of the lyrics. I mean, they do come from a religious context, to my understanding, right? Or at least like a spiritual context with some sort of belief is attached to them. You're talking about the Sanskrit mantras? Yeah. Yeah. Like, for sure. I mean, they, yeah. there's there's deep layers of philosophy behind that. I mean, if you just to say Shiva is to um, open an entire world of philosophy, you know, um, and so do you sort of put that aside or is that just kind of not your framework? Oh, no, I dig it. It's like okay. I, I've metaphorically, I find it rich with poetic meaning. And I love, you know, when it's, I mean, I do explain these things to people because it's, you can't just say, hey, let's chant nonsense because then people will just keep thinking, what does it mean? So you have to say something, you know, right, right. and, and, um, oh no, there's like so many beautiful stories behind this and all of it touches deep into, uh, uh very sophisticated philosophy, um, you know, to chant to Shiva, for example, is to, recognize that things are always coming apart and eventually coming back together again. And, and so you're in effect saying you're honoring the principle of dissolution in the world, that it's the first step into things recreating that, you know, we break things down and then put them back together. You're, you're saying, Hey, I'm here now and alive and singing, and I won't always be here and alive and singing. You know, I'm a temporary, you know, like droplet of consciousness here. You know, you can't not reflect on the metaphors. I think they're rich and beautiful, 
what I'm just saying is that you don't have to know them or know mm -hmm. about it in order to have a transportive experience. Mm -hmm. So it allows the chanter to take whatever journey they want to make contextually. You know, you can look at it from a strict like Hindu perspective and that's available to mm -hmm. you. You can take a journey into say Kashmir Shaivism or Advaita Vedanta um, and um, you can just dig the sounds. Um, you, you, there's a lot of different places that you as a chanter can be and I feel like I want to allow for all those experiences, you know. Um, uh, there's certainly plenty of people been dragged into a chant that I was leading, you know, sort of against their will, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, like, uh, you know, yoga girl brings, you know, boyfriend and promises, you know, look, I'll go to the football game with you, but you have to come to the chant. Right. And so he's there and he's like, okay, <laughs> you know, move me, you know? Yeah. And so, and, yeah. and so I'm, I, on some level I'm, 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 purposefully speaking to the skeptical um, and even trying to honor skepticism as a spiritual path itself, you know, to say, these are my resistances or this is what I don't know or this is what I'm uncomfortable with. Yeah. You know, seems like you and Sheila um, Nichols share that. That when I talked to her, that was a big, that was a big focus for her. I really loved that, that album from, yeah, well, I, I guess you said it's not released yet, but it, but it wasn't. It's, it's on Bandcamp. It's on Bandcamp. Band and, and, and which seems to be, you know, for the elements of the audience here that are unfamiliar with streaming services, um, Bandcamp <laughs> actually pays musicians. Um, mm. And uh, it, it, I think what's beginning to be more typical is that people are putting things up on Bandcamp so that people uh, who want to support the artists can go there first and download it. And you can mm -hmm. get all kinds of stuff. Like, for example, I, you can download a PDF of, like, all the music to Thrum, including the string charts and arrangements. And yeah, that. that's really cool. I noticed that. Yeah. That's really like, cool. Like, okay, you want, to, <laughs> you want to hire a string quartet and play with <laughs> Well, like, go for it, you know? It's, you know, um, but, um, I mean, that record started originally... I mean, Sheila and I go way, way back. Um, I, when I first started making mantra records in the early 2000s, I started asking people that didn't really know anything about this to sing with me. I found that professional musicians um, were able to help me realize this from an art perspective in ways that devotional musicians were not as skillful. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so my first chant records Joppa and Mala I asked people like Donna Delory and CC White and Sheila Nichols um, who are all mantra artists now all mantra artists now. <laughs> they were like I remember CC was like what is Sanskrit you know like <laughs> just, just sing it and um, and the thing is it proves my point okay it's like you start singing it and there's something so fantastic about it that you just want to go deeper and I'm really like I'm thrilled and humbled that some of these people that I asked, you know, to sing on my first records, uh, you know, that I knew from really a kind of Hollywood music scene, you know, mm -hmm. like were so moved by it that they became themselves artists and, you know, went of it and, and took a deep voyage in it, you know. Um, so Sheila and I, you know, sang together a little bit back then and then we kind of got lost. She had a big record deal with Disney and went off on a whole journey with that. And I was, you know, rocking the yoga studios, you know, from the back of the minivan. And uh, <laughs> somehow, you know, she was on the Tonight Show and I was, uh, you know, at the mini mall. So um, <laughs> it just, <laughs> but um, then she showed up at Bhakti Fest a few years ago and, you know, back, well, not more than a few years ago now, but I get a text from her saying, you know, hey, your, your phone number is still the same, you know, and I'm in the audience. And I was like, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> um, anyway, it led to me co-producing her record, All of Nature, and she had morphed from a sort of fight the power political singer into 
a deeply a, a deep place of spiritual inquiry and mm. so that record was a place that we could meet and um our conversation you know just went from there and so when i started making thrum it just seemed natural to do it with her because we have mm. a particular vocal chemistry Mm -hmm. and, and and some of the same questions your voices sound really great together in my humble opinion thank you so are you are you working quite a bit now as producer on... mostly when the, yeah. when the pandemic hit you know i mean i'm sure you and you know so many people that we know like that was suddenly like in one week the whole world shattered it was like mm -hmm. an entire year's worth of tour dates went down. did you you had a whole tour planned yeah oh my god yeah like all over the world and it just wow just like done and um you know uh i was fortunate that i had agreed to produce some tracks for some other artists and i, I wasn't sure how i was going to actually do that given my tour schedule and you know the <laughs> voila <laughs> problem for me and uh uh um so I just turned my attention to that and I realized that, you know, in all these years that I'd been touring, what I wasn't doing was creating new music. It had been years since I'd released a new record and suddenly I had all this time on my hands um, and a studio and, you know, I just started recording. And, uh, and I think, you know, since the pandemic started, I think I've probably produced like 50 pieces of music. Wow. Yeah. And is that something that you did before pr producing? I mean, I guess you did for Sheila. That's a silly question. But like, is, is that something you kind of evolved to become? Or did you have a background in that? Well, I mean, I produced my own stuff mostly. Mm. And um, uh, I mean, I've always actually worked with somebody, an engineer, or somebody who could say no to me, you know, or somebody who could say, hey, that's not working for me, or you want to think about it from this perspective, but you know, I know how to engineer stuff and, you know, um, but, um, and uh, so I learned quite a, a lot about the process. Um, the first record I actually ever produced for another artist was an album called Bhakti Without Borders that I produced mm -hmm. for a guy named Madi Das um, in 2015. And, um, Funnily enough, it was his first album, and it was the first album I ever produced, and we ended up getting nominated for a Grammy for it, which was like, what, you know? Um, and, uh, but I mean, that opened a few doors, and it was surprising to me too. I mean, we, I guess we were recording it largely in 2014 and 15, and I had been in, uh, I'd been in Bali and Australia on tour, and, um, the there was a volcano eruption on Lombok, the neighboring island to Bali. I'd been at the Bali Spirit Festival and I had a big tour in Australia planned following it. And the volcano eruption closed the airspace over Bali and I couldn't leave. And um, so I was stuck there for two weeks. And, you know, it's paradise until you can't get out, in which case, you know, uh, um, and what was happening is that tour date after tour date was having to be rescheduled in Australia. And, mm -hmm. and you know, one venue, like we'd sold 500 tickets to a show in Sydney and we couldn't get the venue back and we had to refund mm -hmm. all the money and, you know, and reschedule it and change airplane tickets. It, it just, it basically, a tour that I would have come home with a, a nice chunk of change from broke even. Right. And it, it was really painful and something I never could have predicted. I mean. Who thinks a volcano right. is going to destroy your tour? <laughs> anyway, I just remember um, being in the middle of the Pacific in the middle of the night, flying back to Los Angeles from Sydney and just going, I tried. I did my best, really. But this isn't working. And I, can't, I, can, I can give this up now. I can just say, I, you know, nobody could guarantee me or any musician of success but I've had a beautiful ride around the world doing something just magical and wonderful. And, and, and I've seen so much of the world and seen how good and kind so many people can be. And things are random and this is fucked up and I'm tired. You know? and, so like in your mind, this was the end of your touring career? Yeah, that was the end. And um. I was like, okay, that's it. I give up. 
You know, it's just too much effort. So we land in LA, I turn on my phone and it blows up with messages, congratulations on your Grammy nomination. <laughs> oh, I guess it's not over, you know? <laughs> and so things are produced, you know, come from there. And I mean, I have a nice credit in my bio and I don't know what it means exactly other than the fact that I got lucky and that it's a beautiful record and that somehow the universe says, do that, you know? Well, when you get nominated for a Grammy though, that's, that's actually cooler. I mean, okay, this is a loaded comment, but it's, it's actually your peers voting you in, right? That's, that's a pretty cool honor because the actual winner of the Grammy is not necessarily, it's not so heavily weighted by, that's how I understand it anyway. You correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And there, I mean, there's a lot of political processes involved in it, and and now I've become much more involved in it because one mm -hmm. of the things that I found out and that Madi found out is that we were nominated in this category called New Age, which I don't really like that term. Um, I don't mean to offend anybody who does, but it doesn't it doesn't identify. It doesn't name the music I do or the music you do or the music right. that a lot of our peers do, and I realized that. They had to put some place that mantra music went. But the people who vote for these things, they're not interested in mantra music. They're interested in, you know, this thing they call new age. And right. um, so we started a process of trying to get chant recognized as a category and um which we failed at at first and then got it together to make a second run at were you trying in the beginning to have it be an entirely different category yeah or to I mean, amend the new age guy no we wanted a separate category for yeah. change but you know there's politics and there's there's only you know sometimes you have to accept half of what you want you know in order to get anything at all yeah. The New Age people pushed back really hard, um, but, and so we failed the first time. Um, and there were a bunch of people involved, um, Sean Johnson, Michael Starita, a bunch of people, you know, writing proposals. And, um, and it, it, but the thing is what came in the back channels is like, well, actually you guys are a community and we recognize there's a, there's a validity to what you're mm. asking for here, but you have to get it together. You know, like you need to organize your community um, and make the case for it. So we did that. And this year they agreed to add chant to New Age and also include ambient because those people who are making ambient mm -hmm. meditative music also felt that what they were doing wasn't New Age. So the fact that there was another group that was also seeking to be recognized, they put it all in a hybrid category. And, you know, that was the best we could do. And, but at least it, it's recognized, you know, mm -hmm. like chant is a thing. And my hope is that it can be expanded beyond the Sanskrit, um, beyond Gurmukhi, beyond, you know, like the kind of yoga world of it to include mm -hmm. everything from like ayahuasca chants to Yoruba chants to Hebrew chants. Mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. There's a, a world of vocal music that has a transcendental intention or a consciousness shifting mm -hmm. intention. Is that where you would kind of draw the distinction between quote unquote world music, which is also a category, I think, right? And the new age chant ambient is kind of the intention behind it? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you, you, chant is, well, also chant is specifically vocal music. And, mm -hmm. um, but it does uh in in all the ways it's practiced generally have the intention of shifting people's awareness in certain ways um it it has however you want to frame it uh, a spiritual impact and people debate a lot about these words spiritual music you know there were people trying to say well let's call it spiritual but then that presumed that like you know jazz is not spiritual mm -hmm. you know? like in so uh, yeah that also tends to be I, I hear that word more in like the christian sense which is very different from like yeah. mantra chant yeah but i mean part of our push too is like well hey you know like there's like 
five or seven different categories of Christian music. And it's <laughs> is there really? I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and it's like, well, there's a whole world here of devotional practices. And I mean, I'm yeah. not discrediting Christian music. It's like, I, I mean, you, you, you can be moved by music that you don't know anything about its spiritual intent. Like I'm not a Sufi. Right. I listen to Kowali. I'm like transported, you know, um, I'm not a Christian exactly, or you know, was, I guess I'm not really anymore, but you know, I've kind of integrated that into yoga in its way. But, you know, I can listen to, you know, Hildegard van Bingen or, you know, Gregorian chant and be moved by it, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, is, are the categories for Christian like pop Christian, country Christian? Is is that how they kind of? Yeah, there's different. There's contemporary Christian, contemporary. There's gospel. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess I see that. Yeah. What's that? They shuffle them from year to year. You know, mm -hmm. like the the inner. Oh really? I didn't realize yeah, that. They're always trying to play. I mean, the Grammys mm -hmm. are a business, and they're mm -hmm. you know they're trying to. Um, adjust their categories to, you know, partly meet popular interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings us to the next part of the project because you guys didn't start or stop at this Grammy category, right? You ended up forming kind of a coalition to Oracle amplify. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, it started there and it kept on going and we realized, you know, I mean, with the pandemic still raging, this would have been back somewhere in 21 when we started this, um, that we needed our community. You know, as an artist, uh, I realized my work doesn't really mean anything without, I mean, it means that the process of creation is, is meaningful to me personally, but it, it, it's amplified and given dimension by an audience. And, and, and chanting particularly because people are singing along with us, you know, they're, they, they're part of the band, you know, like, or, you know, it's like you go and chant and you're like, I got a huge choir, you know? Um, and, and, and I missed uh, the connection to the other artists that you know you'd see people at festivals and things like this you know there there's a there's a community that worldwide is really connected in beautiful ways um and i realized that we weren't making any money from the streaming services that we weren't playing any shows we couldn't <laughs> sell cds anymore because no one buys them because no one can play them and <laughs> that we're making music but we can't and spending all our time doing it and there aren't any record companies really serving us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it occurred to me that as a community that we we were already connected and that if we could work together to advance our own interests, that maybe we could do something revolutionary. Mm. Um, and that ranges even from engaging in social action together, but um, but more than that to um find ways that we could function as like mirrors or amplifiers for one another that by paying attention to each other's work we could help mm -hmm. promote it mm -hmm. uh, that we could hire people to uh serve us like as in like hire publicists or licensing people like effectively we're the record company all of mm -hmm. us is that how you see the Oracle Collective or how it might develop as actually into a record company? In a wholly different way. Hmm. Um, basically, anybody, we can all get our music out to the streaming services. I mean, we do need to be able to negotiate, use our collective power to negotiate in terms of better, everything from better contracts with festivals, you know, how mm. we get paid. That's a little bit more of like a labor union kind of thing, but, um, but there is power in, in, in the collective in this way. Um, to the extent that we can affect the streaming services, well, at least organizing together to get chant recognized means it's searchable now. Um, uh, it's not a category on Spotify. No, but it's it will not. be soon. Oh yeah. Because this is the first year that you could, that we just closed the nominating period with the Grammys. This will be the first year that they actually 
have uh, a nominees and winners in new age ambient chant. Mm. So once that happens, it will be searchable. Mm. Um, but the question is, you know, what do we do together here? Um, it, I don't think at this point, like record companies traditionally put up money to finance projects and then they owned some percentage of the intellectual property. Mm -hmm. um, that's not necessary anymore. Anybody can put their stuff out. And mm -hmm. I don't think a, that a musician's collective needs to get involved on that level financially. I think it's more like um, make services available, use economies of scale. For example, if you know five different artists are releasing records in May, then it should be possible to have a publicist who knows about this and that you could say, all right, well, you know, gang all this stuff together, mm. you know, put the publicity together. Um, but we can also address a single audience, you know, that can know when when people are releasing new things. So we mm. can point our audience all in one place. Mm. We can also get our audience to help finance the operation. Um, it's turned out that people do want to make contributions to support artists, but they need to know how to do it and what's effective. Um, I think where this may be going is toward a kind of app where you can buy tickets to everybody's concerts, where you can subscribe to it and as an audience member, be able to find local kirtans anywhere in the world, um, buy tickets, find out about new releases, and, um, and even directly support artists. Um, in the big picture, um, it may be that using NFTs may allow us to create even a kind of investment fund so that artists can create new work and somebody might invest in the fund itself. Like think of it as like a mutual fund for record production. Instead of mm. investing in my album or your album, you're investing in the community's work and mm. potentially re getting a return on that investment as an audience member. Um, there's a lot of ideas floating in the air right now. And what we're trying to do right now is practice the art of the possible, um, which is to say that we said we get chant as a, as a category recognized. We did. The next thing was to get everybody to work together in no small feat. Uh, to um, focus our audience's attention on our Spotify plays and to get more people to follow us. And um, that was effective, especially at sort of uh, the mid-level and um, for people who didn't have a lot of followers, they now have significantly more followers. Mm -hmm. and you're, somebody already had hundreds of thousands of followers your percentage increase was smaller, but the idea is that um, we stimulated the algorithm of Spotify to start more frequently recommending our music and cross recommending it to our audience. So we're gonna keep doing those things on, we wanna try it on YouTube, on Apple Music, on mm. other services. And just to, to uh, cause you haven't, explained yet and I'm, I'm thinking maybe somebody listening to it might not know what you're talking about because we haven't actually talked about the app oh the app yeah yeah <laughs> we um we created a piece of software that allows you with a single click to follow 108 that wasn't i know it's a special number but it wasn't intentional it just worked out <laughs> really that that's cool yeah yeah um, 108 artists all at once so by doing that um, it tells Spotify recommends music by algorithm. You know, it sees what people are searching for. It sees what artists people are searching for. So we created a surge of people searching for artists who had related music. The first step is all the artists followed each other, mm. thus creating an inner web of connections between a certain group of artists. Then when audience members follow any of those artists or all of those artists, it creates another algorithm on top of it, which Spotify's algorithm sees as like, oh, there's interest in music of this type. 
and that means it starts recommending it more. So the idea was to, you know, jack the algorithm to like go, well, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a kind of artificial intelligence deciding what kind of music is going to get recommended to who. And instead of just floating along, you know, we decided to try and take, uh, take charge of it in a way as a community to say, well, mm -hmm. okay, we're here, we know each other, we can, we have the capacity to work together. Um, my hope is, is that if, as we're able to do more of these things, um, that other communities of musicians who don't address like a mass pop audience, like think bluegrass or jazz or mm -hmm. you know, things like this, would also be able to organize mm -hmm. in ways that uh, are more self-supporting. Mm -hmm. That's that's the goal here. But it's it's like one step at a time of like what what can we do that's next effective. Mm -hmm. So. Um, those are things that we're trying to identify right now. Um, in the wake of the first experiment, um, we now have upwards of 60 more artists who want to join us. And, and we have a little bit of a problem of like, well, what to do next? We've got everybody's interest. Mm -hmm. And clearly we can do things acting together. The question is, what's the next thing to do that will advance our economic interests that will create more plays and create more interest in the music that we're making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. YouTube is interesting. It doesn't get as much like flack, I guess, but you know, in terms of music, YouTube pays a fraction of even what Spotify plays, which is the worst, but nobody, nobody talks about that. I love YouTube though. Like I, I think it's a fantastic right. app. I use it daily. Sure. I don't use it necessarily to listen to music, but um, I would be interested to know what could Appar be done. Apparently more people actually use YouTube to listen to music than anything. Yeah, that's crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I'm kind of, you know, I'm more and more involved with the Grammys now. I just got asked to be on some committee there that had to do with nominations and stuff. And, and um, what interests me there is there's a political lobbying aspect of the, the Recording Academy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the world of software is out in front of the law again and again. Um, and they keep using the fact that laws don't exist about certain kinds of royalties to basically just decide what they're going to pay people. And it's a very mm -hmm. weird thing. Like in most forms of capitalism, you have a product and they say, how much did it cost you to make it? And you say this, and then you negotiate some percentage on top of that that is a profit, and you know, and then the market kind of price goes up and down or whatever. But music isn't that way. Yeah. Like the companies told us what they were going to pay for music. It has no relationship to the cost of making a record. Right. I mean, when we could sell physical CDs, you could recoup the cost of making that CD, you know, in the course of, of touring and, you know, in the space of a year or so, you know, sure. or less, depending. Yeah. Now you don't have any hope. I mean, when, you know, a million plays gets you $800, like, I, you know, I, it's, it's a little confounding, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so this is requiring lobbying on a political level um, at the risk of, you know, boring an audience here. There's a bunch of different ways that musicians make money from music. Part of it has to do with the intellectual property, like who wrote the song, uh, ownership of the master, like who paid for the recording. Um, and uh, then often there's a royalty that goes to like who the artist is. Mm -hmm. um, the royalty laws in America were codified in the 1930s and 40s when most music was either sold via LPs or broadcast radio. Mm -hmm. um, and those laws of royalties only apply in those places. So even though we get our music on our phones over the airwaves, that's mm -hmm. not seen as broadcast radio. So. Mm -hmm. 
if your music's played by a traditional radio station, you get traditional royalties. If your music's played over Wi-Fi, you get no royalties. And there's no laws that tell the streaming services how much royalties they have to pay, which is why they all pay different. Right, right. Well, so, and it's global too, which makes it, I mean, you can't spot, you know, Spotify exists in Sweden. I don't even know what, what that would look like in the, I mean, the American government can't tell a right. Swedish company what to pay their right. artists, right? Right, they're taking advantage of the fact that it's transnational, but the fact is, is that they're making money from stuff that from material that you and I are paying to create, or you know, many many artists are paying to create, and they're not paying us what it costs to create it. They're making money out of the right. fact that we want to be heard. Right. And and, um, and there's a there's a a deep inequity to that, um, and it it poses some serious questions about the future of the music industry and how this is going to work. So the Oracle Collective, to kind of land the plane here, is an attempt to um, create a, a, a unity, a, a space of mutual support between a community of artists and the people who are moved by the artist's music. I think that our worldwide base of fans understands the importance of the music that we make in terms of their lives, values it enough that they are willing to in some ways support directly the artists. And we're trying to create some mechanisms by which that can occur. And it might be that you subscribe to an app and you pay a monthly fee and, mm. you know, um, some of that is distributed directly to the artists or it pays for services that the artists can access. Um, uh, I'd almost like to try and create a kind of like frequent flyer program for chant, you know. Um, How does that work? Well, it's like, hey, if you, um, just like if you take a bunch of flights and you get miles mm -hmm. and, okay. and get a free flight, you know. Um, it, like maybe you go to, you know, 12 kirtans in the course of a year and that would give you then, you know, free concert tickets or oh, I like that. Might, or it might <laughs> uh, give you access. You know, there might be other benefits, you know, you're like uh, as somebody who contributes a lot. Um, it might translate into just like if you have, you know, gold or platinum status, you get to board the plane first, you know, uh, you might just have a pass that, you know, when you when you go to the concert, you they let the gold people in first, you know, you get better. That's seat. really cool. Yeah. Maybe they get like a VIP treatment too. They get to yeah, sure. get a little meet and greet with the artist. Or... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because it, this is a really personal thing. You know, I like talking to to the people that come there. I mean, they're just 100% beautiful, interesting people. And I, um, I like to talk to people, but it can get a little overwhelming. So mm -hmm. sure, if there's a, you know, have a cup of tea with the artist after the show kind of a thing, I'd be down with that. Yeah. You know? um, so, but the idea is to do it across a group of artists so that, you know, you could see anybody's show and, you know, uh, and then get your get your free ticket to whoever as well. So um, there's a lot of questions about how this all would work, but it's it's all about trying to unite a community and and get the community and the artists in a you know mutually supportive relationship. Mm -hmm. Oh well, that's awesome. <laughs> Bravo to you <laughs> and and to all oh. the people who are who are part of that project. It's. It's not yeah, well, you're yet. part of that project. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, well, but I mean, I don't feel like I've been instrumental in terms of action besides sharing the app, but I... Well, no, I appreciate that. And the thing is, look, I understand people are going to step forward as they're able. And, and really uh, what we need as a group of artists is a standing, like, staff, a group of people that are in an office that we can access and you might not need them all the time, you know, mm -hmm. but if you are actively touring and promoting new work, you would probably want to have access to publicists. Um, there's also back end things like um, 
one thing that does pay artists is licensing. Like if you get a mm. movie or in some advertising or something like that, that still pays. And so to have somebody who works for the whole group mm. knows everybody's music and can like pitch that to film studios would be very useful. Um, I know it sounds wacky, but like I sang Asatoma Satgamaya on the tail credits of one of those Matrix movies, and I I still get you know. Did you really? Mm, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's awesome! Yeah, I still get royalties <laughs> from it. I mean, it's like sometimes it's like six dollars and seventy eight cents, you know. <laughs> uh, but it's still, it, it you know, I mean, it seems like oh, Sanskrit mantras would have no commercial value, but that's not mm -hmm. at all true. Yeah. No. Yeah. And wow. Especially, yeah. Especially, you know, um, for those of us who are also writing songs in English, um, I think that there is a potentially massive market for spiritual singer songwriters mm. that aren't like Christian singer songwriters. There's another category. Working on yeah. it. <laughs> Working on it. Oh, yeah. so awesome. But I mean, I know that you write things in that realm too. So, um, yeah. uh, it's uh you know it's not exactly a side project it's just you know it's it's another aspect of what we do as artists yeah and yeah. potentially a larger group of people to address awesome well on that note thank you so much for doing this and yeah. can you share how people can stay in touch with you how they can find out about all of your projects and releases and stuff like that Sure. Well, we were discussing the Oracle Collective. That's A-U-R-I-C-L-E Collective um, dot com is how you can find out about all these artists. Oracle, in this case, represents both um, the opening to the ear and it's also the chamber of the heart that lets the freshly oxygenated, oxygenated blood flow in. Um, and of course, it's a homonym for Oracle as in like consult the um, but so uh, you can find out uh, and about a whole community and what they're doing there, and we're developing that uh, website and an app, etc. Uh, you can go to davestringer.com and uh, you can um, find your way to all sorts of things that I'm doing, um, including things like look at a neuroscience proposed research proposal um, about how we influence each other as we chant um, and um, you can go to my Bandcamp page also Dave Stringer and find Thrum um, my new chant record in progress called Glider and uh, my latest collaboration with Madi Das whose first record I produced for the Grammy nomination the next one is called Mantra Americana and the first five songs are out on Spotify and also on Bandcamp we are playing around in a pool where um, uh, mantra music has become something authentically like, you know, it's world folk music. It has an origin in the Indian subcontinent, um, but it's become much more than that. And the mighty river that's absorbed a lot of different influences. Personally, I hear a connection between American country and bluegrass mm -hmm. and Indian ragas and if you can think of uh, country music as played by harmoniums and tablas um, and uh, with various different kinds of twang um, included um, call it country and eastern music that's kind of what I've been up to lately and uh, so you can check all those things out um, Sheila Nichols N-I-C-H-O-L-L-S is a very fine songwriter and uh, our collaboration Thrum is available, but you can also check out her albums. All of Nature is the one that I co-produced and it's really, really good, so. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Dave. This was really great. delightful. Yeah. And I will see y'all in the next episode. Bye. Absolutely. Thanks so much. <laughs> thank you for tuning into the podcast. Please remember to like, rate, subscribe, whatever your service offers you as a way to engage and let others know that you're enjoying it so it gets shared with more people. For all news updates on what I am doing, you can go to my website, portersinger.com, sign up for my mailing list and get a free track as a thank you. All right, I will see you in the next episode. Bye.